It was a day like any other in the Arbain district of the canal port city of Suez. Cars moved about on the streets, in a hurry to get wherever they were going. Pedestrians ambled about less purposefully on the roadside, or when necessity dictated, risked a mad dash through traffic to reach the other side. People idled in coffee shops, purchased kebabs from street vendors, and perused the wares of merchants. Only a few of those meandering about were locals. At the canal's end, the population of Suez fluctuated daily with tourists, sailors and passengers debarking for a day ashore, while they waited for their vessels to make the long passage through to the Mediterranean Sea, or to meet a ship heading south toward the Red Sea. The locals barely even noticed the appearance of five more strangers. They did not arrive together, nor did they appear to even be aware of each other. There was the young couple, European tourists. He spoke halting English with lapses into German, and she spoke halting English with lapses into French. Most of the Arab merchants spoke a smattering of English, so communication was not that difficult. The man, who was broad and tall, had close-cropped blonde hair with a long goatee, and he wore dark Oakley sunglasses. He looked like he might belong to an American motorcycle gang. The woman was quite a bit shorter and very shapely. It was difficult to tell if she was beautiful, because she was mostly covered up by a hijab and sunglasses that matched her boyfriend's. It was a bit unusual for a Western tourist to wear the ceremonial headscarf, but not enough so to make the locals take note. The pair bought some food and bottles of Origina at a shop. At another, a man bought his girlfriend an Egyptian cartouche pendant. Then there was the Chinese photographer, or at least everyone assumed he was a photographer, because he was lugging around a huge camera case. He also spoke halting English and asked everyone he met whether they knew a good place to take photographs of ships entering and leaving the canal. When the question was answered, he would stare back, uncomprehending through his dark sunglasses. Then he would wander off in the wrong direction, leaving the locals to scratch their beards in amusement. The last two strangers appeared to be Arabs. They had swarthy complexions, thick dark hair and beards, and spoke perfect if slightly old-fashioned Arabic. The smaller of the pair did most of the talking. Smaller in this case was a relative term, because at just over six feet in height, he was taller than most of the locals. Nevertheless, he was dwarfed by the other man, who was a good head taller and built as solidly as the pyramids. The two men did not attempt to question the locals or strike up conversation, but merely sipped their coffee in the shadow of an awning. From time to time, the smaller man would check his wristwatch. A closer look would have revealed a vintage 1967 Omega Speedmaster Professional, while the larger man mostly looked straight ahead, almost statue still. Like most Egyptian men, they eschewed traditional Arab attire for modern trousers and cotton shirts. The big man's muscles strained the fabric of his. Curiously, both were wearing dark sunglasses, just like the others. The sunglasses connected the five visitors in more than just a symbolic way. In addition to concealing their eyes, each pair of Oakley Half-Jacket 2.0 sport frames also hid a miniature Bluetooth wireless device that was linked to a next-generation quantum smartphone. The superior processing and data transfer speed of the quantum computers, which were an order of magnitude faster than anything commercially available, meant that each member of this group of visitors could send and receive real-time audio and video instantaneously. Because the processor used quantum entanglement, any lag of signal transmission was too minute to be measured, nor was there any need for encryption. The transmission was not broadcast using radio waves, so there was no way for anyone to intercept it. Images were recorded by a high-def camera in the nose piece of each pair of glasses. 
They were viewed using a virtual retinal display projection system that beamed the video directly into the wearer's eyes. From his perch on the roof of a three-story building near the port, the man the locals had dismissed as the Chinese photographer was able to see everything that the others could, and in turn, he was able to share his unique perspective with them. That, however, was only the beginning of what was possible with the technology in the glasses. Even a cursory look around was enough to transmit a wealth of data into the shared network. The information was also transmitted instantaneously to a mainframe on the other side of the planet. A sophisticated facial recognition program compared every single face that passed in front of the cameras against a dozen different databases, including several international terrorist watch lists. The information could be displayed visually, if so desired, but at present it was enough to simply overlay the results of the facial recognition scan. Each person that entered into the virtual environment had a tiny icon right above their head, a green dot if a positive identification was made and the person was free of suspicion, a yellow dot if no identification was possible, and a red dot if a person was of special interest.